Hey everyone, thanks again for coming back to another episode of Built By. Um, this week, very excited to have Rick McIntyre, who's a consultant for Yoho Associates on the, on the, on the podcast. Um, he's got a great background in the home improvement industry. So um, Rick, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So before we dive in, um, I think we're really going to talk about a lot of the mistakes that we, you see home improvement companies particularly making um, when they come to you for, for um, consultant um, advice and things like that. But before we dive in, I'd, I'd really like to get, you know, kind of your background, how you got started in the industry um, and, and how you um, became a consultant with Yoho. Oh, yeah, fair enough. So, well, kind of going back to how I got into the industry to begin with, I, I was a, I was in uh, newspaper advertising sales. Oh. And one of and one of my clients was Champion Window Company. And once upon a time, uh, Champion Window Company was one of the largest home improvement companies in America. And uh, I got uh, the I had the privilege of having them on my account list. And I got to know who the guy who would become the COO and kind of part of the one of the key players in the architect, uh, key players and architects in the in what would become the champion model. Uh, but uh, I sold them advertising, believe it or not. In fact, I sold Champion Window Company the very first gatefold, which was uh, uh, on a comic. Now, by the way, for some of your viewers, let me explain what a newspaper is. Right. So that was this thing where people wrote, you know, you got typewriting <laughs> yeah. and it was on paper and you'd read it and it'd come in the morning usually. So it's a newspaper. Nobody knows what it is anymore. But anyway, the comics were always <laughs> the most favorite part of so many people because it was colored. It was funny and all this stuff. And what we did was we put this big ad that was a quarter. It was the whole length of the comic pages and it was half the page that was covered with an advertisement. And and when we first when I first sold them this champion window this, they were skeptical and as they should have been. I mean, nobody had ever done it. How do you know it'll work? And that's the the thing about marketing. And I know that's kind of your forte here uh, is kind of helping home improvement companies maximize their marketing potential. But one of the things we joke about in our industry is that marketing is a 50-50 proposition. Maybe you've heard this. 50% of the time it works. 50% of the time it doesn't work. The challenge is nobody knows what 50%, right? So they just keep advertising. So we did this gatefold at Champion Window Company, and it was so uh, popular that it had such great results. They fell in love with it, and they knew it was working because they literally got phone calls from people who were angry at the company. They'd call Champion Window Company and say, how dare you ruin my comics? So anyway, that's and that was kind of my forte. I got to know the, the players at Champion Window Company. I helped them with advertising, in particular back in those days. Uh, newspaper print was a viable medium. It still is in certain circumstances today, but there's just so much uh, competing uh, static and noise that it's not what it once was. But anyway, that's how I got to know the guys at Champion Window Company. This is about 25 years ago. They brought me, they enticed me to come into the industry uh, uh, by showing me the opportunity that there is to make money in the home improvement industry. And it's a phenomenal opportunity. Many of your uh, uh, viewers and listeners, I'm sure know that. And that's how I started. I started out with Champion Window Company. I, uh, I took over the city, the operations and ownership in the Louisville market. I then managed uh, five other markets in addition to that, Lexington, Nashville, St. Louis, uh, and, um, and a little place uh, uh, right in between St. Louis and um, and uh, Louisville 
in, in a kind of a small rural market in, in Indiana. It's about a $30 million conglomeration. And then I was also a part of their uh, corporate steering committee. And so I was a, a one of eight people that sat in a group and a board that kind of helped set policy and process and procedure and really got to be a part of what was a great, great experience watching Champion Window Company rise to become one of the largest home improvement companies in America until we sold uh, the company in 2008 to a private equity firm out of Boston. Uh, and uh, and things have kind of changed then. I stayed on for two more years as was required. In 2010, I stepped aside as a full-time employee. At that time, I was the director of market development. So I was responsible for opening all the champion window stores across the country. And then uh, I stayed on for two more years in that role as a consultant. And that was kind of the birthing to my moving into the uh, consulting business. The Dave Yoho piece came together. I, I've known David Yoho, Dave Yoho's son. Uh, many people in the industry know him as Junior. We live in the same town. Our kids went to the same school. We've known each other for years. We interacted a little bit when I was a champion. And he you know, got me an audience with his dad. They were looking for somebody with my level of experience to work at Dave Yoho Associates. You have to have at least 25 years of experience in the industry at a management level, or you can't be a consultant for Dave Yoho. So I met at least that qualification. The rest remains to be seen. But that was about five years ago, and I've been uh, traveling the coast to coast across the country, including a, a couple of accounts up in Canada. I got accounts. I got uh, clients on uh, in LA. I got clients in New York. Uh, you know, and everywhere pretty much in between. So get around, cover some ground, got a lot of miles ta tallied up. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So that, that that's an incredible, really, really entrance into the industry. I mean, Champion Windows is, is obviously one of the most, you know, well-known window companies in, in, in the country, if not the world. And um, it's interesting, you had that, in, that advertising background that when you came in, um, when you, when you came into Champion Windows, I'd love to hear what, what things looked like when you first got there? And did you have kind of a, a strategic plan for, for growth there? Did you know this is how we want to grow? Um, and are you applying that to, to kind of your consulting? Oh, absolutely. Uh, at Champion Window Company, uh, it was very strategic. But one of the secrets to the success of the Champion Window formula was that they went after people with an entrepreneurial spirit. And everybody that that was responsible for operating a champion window retail operation had equity. They had skin in the game. And that was the genius of the model. Uh, Ed Levine and Bernie Barbash were two of the key players in that. Of course, my longtime friend and, and really the guy that got me into the business, Don Jones, big part of that. But but uh, yeah, yeah, they got people with skin in the game. And then they and then we leveraged everybody's expertise. And they went, let me tell you what, there were some people in the business at Champion Window Company that were players, even on that executive committee team, the, the steering committee that I was a part of, they were some of the brightest minds and the sharpest people. And they came from, from strong backgrounds, including uh, uh, mine what happened to have been newspaper advertising. But we had a guy in there called Tim, named Tim Slattery, and he actually was uh, kind of owned and opened most of the West for Champion. And he had a background in direct mail, a significant background. He owned one of the largest direct mail firms in the Midwest. But so we did have it. It was very strategic. Everything was done strategically. Every year we planned out the next year, all the way down to a monthly calendar of what was going to happen. What and back in those days, we're talking about the early '80s. Everybody was still buying yellow pages. I mean, believe it or not. Oh, I'm sorry. I keep remembering my eyes. Yellow pages is a big thick book, <laughs> and the paper was yellow. Anyway, 
yeah. everybody was listening. So back in those days, everybody believed you had to be in the Yellow Pages. And to be honest with you, you did. I mean, mm -hmm. if you were going to be considered a player, because most people in the early 80s still went to the Yellow Pages to find a, a company that they would consider trusting their home with. And so we did yellow pages. It was strategic. We bought we when we went into a market. In fact, that's one of the number one ways we determined whether we would go into a market or not. Is right. we would go get the yellow pages in a in, in San Antonio, Texas, and we'd look at the yellow pages. And if we could find seven, eight, or nine window companies in there, then we knew it was a good market because <laughs> there were seven or eight people in the business doing it. And then we knew all we had to do was was be better than them. And it was that easy. If we could go there, be better than them, work harder than them, because we had a strategy and most of them didn't. And we had capital, which is what kills most home improvement companies is the lack thereof mm -hmm. uh, or the or the lack of planning or the lack of a strategy. Uh, yeah, there, there are guys that think you can get in this business. You can just work harder than everybody else. And occasionally that works, but not like it used to. And you really got to have a strategy. You got to have a business plan. You got to have capital. You got to have you know, things laid out. So we started, yeah, strategically. We had a plan. We set our marketing out every year. We, we'd go through, we'd literally put the calendar together. And on that calendar, we would use different colors. It was very primitive back then. Today, with all the tools that and companies like yours that provide all these uh, tools and techniques and services that really make it a lot easier for, for owners and operators than it, than it used to be. Like we were looking at calendars with different colors and yellow was newspaper and <laughs> orange was uh, direct mail and blue was TV and this and you know green was radio. And you knew that you had radio going this day and you had TV going these days and you had an open house, a big open house sale in the store on this weekend. And there was a big uh, home and garden show or some kind of an event. And it was always, always laid out and reviewed. It was very primitive, but honestly, I think in some ways, although there's there were no techno savvy, uh, techno savvy people in our group back then, some mm. have gone on to be that. Today, technology just makes that so much easier. Yeah, yeah, that's and it. We, and yeah, and to answer your other follow up on the last part of that question, do I use those things today? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So a lot of that strategy building, I assume, is is a lot sure. of what you help companies with. Um, yeah. You're, your comment about the yellow pages, it's hard to believe that was the original Google. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yes, exactly right. And by yeah. the way, I was, I would, I, I don't know, uh, hopefully, um, rein me in if you need to. That's mm -hmm. been a common theme. But what, but what I was going to say is this, when Google first came out, when the, the whole internet, uh, social media, all those different means of advertising. When it first came out, literally most of us in the industry, myself included, we revolted. We were like, what do you mean pay you for people to come and look at my website and maybe think about calling me? We didn't understand that. We couldn't we couldn't imagine that being profitable or effective. And many of us at Champion in the early, early days rejected Google and social media as a means and fought it tooth and nail. And then finally we realized, man, what are we doing? Mm -hmm. This is the future. And of course, well, needless to say, it is nobody even knows the yellow pages are anymore. Yeah. So I'm explaining what it is. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. You mentioned that like that that technology technological, I guess, evolution um, of the industry because you know, with COVID in the past few months, it seems like it's it's been another technical evolution. I mean, you, you see a lot of companies revert back, you know, not even revert back, but they adopted virtual appointments at the drop of a hat. So they had to change their entire process of 
of sales and yeah. in-home appointments. Um, as a consultant, you probably saw a lot of that on the front lines um, with, with businesses, you know, coming to you for advice. And um, I'd love to hear some of your insights there and, and how companies were maybe able to overcome it and things like that. Yeah, that's uh, that's true. We were on the forefront of that. We uh, we were one of the first uh, firms to come out. We did a, 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 a joint effort with Market Sharp. I'm sure you've heard of them and mm-hmm. a few other sponsors, and put on kind of a COVID response, COVID disaster response uh, webinar, a series of webinars, and a lot of people did. And in the beginning, everybody was uh, uh, screaming and yelling virtual appointments, virtual appointments, virtual appointments. And in some spaces, it worked really good. And in the beginning, it was the only thing that people could do, right? I mean, we were right. being told, don't go into anybody's, don't don't leave your home. We were being told, don't leave your home, stay in, you know, uh, shelter in, at home. And, and we were being told this and, you know, in many, in some cases, forced to do it. And then uh, early on, some of the experts in our industry recognized that we could be deemed Many of the companies that do what we do could be deemed essential services. And so we got a little bit of an opportunity to get out and get back to work in that regard. But there was still this issue of how do you get in the home? And early on, you know, the idea of the virtual appointment came on strong. And, it, and most of the players in the industry that knew they needed to do something because here we have, you can't just shut our businesses down and they just start back up. Uh, you have to have a funnel. There's a, there's a funnel of activity. You know, you've got in, people are, are, are interested and then they start to investigate and then they start to evaluate and then they start to uh, move forward with the decision making processes. And our marketing cycles are designed to try to move that along as fast, as quickly as possible or catch people early and see them through the whole process. So so many companies were just going, we got to do something. We can't just sit here and do nothing. And that's true. If you do nothing, you'll end up in a, it'll be a disaster. You have to act. You have to take some kind of action. So virtual came on the scene and we were part of all that and how to do it and what to do. And But to be honest with you, I think what most people have found, although there's still a lot of clamor that virtual is going to be a part of our future, and I'm sure that's true to some degree, it will. But I don't think we're ever going to see the day, in, in, in my opinion, mm-hmm. um, now having said this, I was wrong about Google. So let's just clear that up. <laughs> but- I don't think we're going to be able to see the day when we'll do more virtual appointments than we will do in home. And and that's because there's something that sets this industry apart from all other industries. And that is, is that most things that people buy is what's called a finished good. They buy a finished good in fashion. Uh, They see a pair of eyeglasses or readers that they like, that they need, they need them. And so they go into the store and they put them on, they look in the mirror and then they pick up a piece of paper and they, oh, I can read that. I like the way it looks and honey, what do you think? And you know, if your wife is kind and gentle like mine, she'll lie to you and say, you look great. <laughs> and then you look at, you take the glasses off and you look at a little tag and it says $67. And you make a decision about how you feel about those glasses, what they did for you, how they made you feel when you wore them, what uh, impression it gave to others. And you determine that's worth 67 bucks and you make a buying decision. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with a car or a stereo or a computer or techno, uh, uh, technical equipment or almost anything, furnishings, a lot of goods for your home, carpeting, drapery. I could go on and on. Mm-hmm. You can buy them in a finished good status. Most of what we do in the home improvement industry, a bathroom remodel, a kitchen refacing, a patio room, windows, um, a new roof. These things all, there are two components to them. 
There's the finished good side of it, the shingle, the window, the the carpet itself, and then there's the then there's the installation process, mm-hmm. how it's installed, the materials that are used to install it, the skill level of the installer, the reputation of the company that's doing the installation, whether they have insurance or they don't have insurance, whether they got a business license or don't have a business license. And all of those things, if they're not present, can be a high risk proposition for a consumer and can make the difference between them having a really great experience and a horrible one. An example would be they could buy they could buy one of the best windows on the market using windows. They could buy the best window on the market and if the company that installs it doesn't know what they're doing and they don't have skilled craftsmen installing it, they spent a lot of money and they got a bigger problem than they had before. And so because we sell what's called an unfinished good, I think the home improvement industry is always going to have a substantial portion of their business come from the visit with the consumer at their home. Because in many cases, the conditions under which the products are being installed can affect the price more than the than the uh, materials being installed. And so you've got to know the conditions and you can't price without knowing it. Now, there's some some companies have tried. There's been a company that's been out for a while doing a virtual, but long before COVID, basically doing a virtual pricing on Windows. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I won't mention their name. I'm not a fan. And they just call and give you, you give them a random size and they say, it's going to be this. And, um, and then the people say, okay, that sounds good. And then somebody show up at the house, measure it and find out there's issues that needed to be addressed. And now the price changed, customers dissatisfied, or they didn't address the issues and were able to say, well, you didn't tell us that. Mm-hmm. So I think we're always going to have a, a large portion of our, of our sales is still going to happen face to face with people in their home, but more and more virtual is, you know, going to become something people, now that they know we can, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're going to require us to. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, and it, it's yeah. interesting, the, um, you know, in a high consideration purchase, you think the number one thing that, that, that you need with a customer is trust. And the easiest way really to get that trust is to have a face-to-face meeting and, you know, them knowing who their installer is going to be, the person in their home, um, the sales rep that's helping them. It's really hard to do that over the internet. Um, but you see some companies, you know, you kind of using a combination of both. So it's interesting to see how, how yeah. companies will start leveraging both of those yeah. things. Well, you're right. Let me, and let me throw this in too, because what you just said, if you are going to do virtual and we have people who do and, and have, here's what we recommend. If you have a sales methodology, and you should, if you don't have a sales methodology, you're missing so much opportunity. And I'll give you a, just a quick sales methodology would be uh, your your agenda, your greeting. You have a methodology for how you approach the door and what you say when the customer comes to the door. Uh, we, we Another one was needs assessment. You are going to assess the project, find out what they need to have done, what they want to have done. That should be a methodological process. Then we have what we call the trust or the company story. And that's that component where you would find out if the cup comes customer will feel comfortable trusting you with their home. Hopefully they will. Yeah. Uh, and then and then there's the custom solution, how you go about giving them what they want for their home. And they feel like you've made this specifically to address their needs. And then you, they've got to see the value. And that's the fifth thing. And then there's, you know, you've got to get them to agree to do business with you, which is the sixth thing. So if you have a methodology and, and I've seen them all, I've been around a long time. I've seen them all. You can take all the methodology, sales methodologies that are taught by all the different 
consulting firms and teachers and trainers out there. And you could boil them all down to those six basic steps. Whatever you use, whether it's a six step, an eight step, a 10 step, a 12 step, or whatever it is, here's our recommendation. If you're going to do a virtual presentation, stick to your methodology. It, it's the only shot, it's the only shot you have. Because with the virtual, one thing that you can't avoid is when you get to the end, the customer going, okay, thanks a lot. Uh, uh, can you email us that? And then click, they turn the meeting off. Where if you're sitting in their home, most people who've spent a considerable amount of time with you will be gracious enough to hear you out. And I think that's what we're finding the most difficult about the virtual presentation world. It's great for the consumer, mm -hmm. candidly, it's not as good for the company. That's interesting. Um, yeah, and and you know, you mentioned that that sales methodology and the process is being one of the biggest mistakes that companies are making. Um, I know when we talked the other day bef before we had this podcast, um, we were talking about a few other things that you see companies um, doing wrong or, or not doing to the best of their ability. Um, and one of the big things, and this kind of circles back to when you were talking about Champion Windows in the beginning when they were hiring, you know, entrepreneurs and musicians. And one of the, the problems you see companies making today is they're not hiring um, the right people or hiring as well. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on, um, you know, how, how do you coach companies? Like, what's the process there? Yeah, great question. And, and by the way, mishires are one of the big, most costly things that companies encounter. In fact, most companies have no idea how much they spend on a mishire. You know, they think in terms of, well, I hired a salesman and, you know, I brought him in, I paid him training pay for a few weeks. Maybe I paid him 500 bucks a week and he, for four weeks or five or six weeks. And, uh, you know, and then, you know, three months later, he didn't wash out, he washed out and they think in terms of, okay, so that cost me $3,000, you know, six weeks, $500 a week, you know, um, did I get that right? Yeah, that's about 600. I'm sorry, that's $500 a week, six weeks, about $3,000. And they think, well, that's all I really lost on that guy. But what they don't calculate is I gave him 20 leads and mm -hmm. the average lead cost me four a month. And the average lead cost me $400 a month and he didn't sell anything. And, and by the way, my average sale is, is 5,000 or, or 10,000 or 15,000. And it can be that 3,500, whatever it is. And for all, and I should, and, and on average, we close 30% or 35%. And if they take the percentages, if I'd have sold, if I'd have, if normally I got 20 leads and I, and I, and I'm at 25%, by the way, 25% is bad. It's not good. You should be in the 30, 35 range, but, if you factored all of that in, how many leads you gave them, how much revenue they should have brought in but didn't bring in, oftentimes you can look back and a bad hire for salesperson that lasts six, six to eight months can be somewhere in the neighborhood of sixty to eighty thousand dollars in, wow. in expense, and it can cost you even more than that in lost revenue. And people don't think about that; they just think about, well, training pays five hundred bucks, it was only six weeks, and that's why, like everything we do at Dave Yoho Associates and everything that I've really ever done in my career with Champion is everything in the business is methodological, not just the sales process. Sales methodology, everybody understands, but everything should be methodological. We have a methodological process, a logical method for hiring people. Hmm. And it starts with uh, how we recruit uh, and how, how many we recruit. And 
And how do we interview them? Uh, we have a process where we'll say, we go through this recruiting process where we'll review resumes. Now we know that resumes and interviews are just the same thing almost identically as an infomercial, right? The vegematic, you could dice it, slice it, it climbs into the fryer itself, it drains itself and then grabs a salt and pepper shaker and walks to your table. That's not real, but that's what they tell you when they show you the vegematic, right? It's the infomercial. And the interview and the resume, they're infomercials. And so we have a methodology for how we teach people that you're only looking for certain things. You're looking for disqualifiers because of course they wanna qualify themselves. And then when you do the interview process, we, that's a process too. We, 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 re we require people to act quickly. When we bring them in, we have questions lined out in advance that are specific, that are designed to reveal their skills and their knowledge and their abilities, and to some degree to uncover their tendencies. Now, we also like to use uh, assessment tools that will also help us understand people better. So we recommend the use of, once we've made a decision that this person meets our criteria, they answered the questions favorably, they didn't disqualify themselves, we're trying to answer in the in the hiring process, we go through interview, we're really trying to answer three questions that are critical to any business. Question number one is, can they do the job? Do they have the physical ability and the, and the raw tools to do the job? Give me, let me give an example. If you're trying to hire somebody to canvas, to knock on doors, door to door, and get appointments for you, you need someone who can carry on a cogent conversation. They can speak with people. They can look someone in the eye. And so if you bring somebody in that you're trying to hire from just like that, and you just hire them because they showed up, and the whole time in the interview, they got their head down, they don't look up, they mumble, they don't enunciate their words, That's you're, they don't, here's what you have. You have someone who cannot do the job. Mm -hmm. So why would you hire them? Uh, but, but people do it all the time. Um, like if you were hiring somebody for a construction job and they couldn't lift 50 pounds, they weren't capable, physically capable of lifting 50 pounds, they would be disqualified. They, they couldn't get hired. Yeah. And we should have the same things in our business. So can they do the job? Number two, will they do the job? You see, by the way, when you ask somebody that question, they're always going to tell you, yeah. If you ask somebody, will you do the, if we tell you to do something, will you do it? What do you think they're going to say? Of course they're going to say yes. So yeah. many times this one here, you can't figure out at the interview, but you might be able to see some indications in their resume and their track record and their performance. Maybe they've hopped around a lot and you got to find out why. Maybe mm -hmm. it's because they say one thing and do another, but mm -hmm. can they do the job? Will they do the job? And I was about to say, sometimes you can't tell that right away, but I'm going to come back to that. You should know that within two weeks at the most. And I'll come back to that. The third thing you got to make sure you answer a question Third question you have to answer for yourself is, do they fit the culture of our company? Are these the kind of people I wanna work with? Are these the kind of people I wanna surround my people with? And if you can answer yes to that, those three questions, then you should hire them. But then this, most companies do hire, even if they get the hiring right, they, they typically they'll fall down on the training. So they backpedal to that second one. Your training, your onboarding process ought to require the, the candidate, the individual who's being brought in and onboarded to demonstrate to you that they will do what must be done to be successful in this business, whatever it is. And a lot of times like for a salesperson, it's easy to do. We give them a piece of scripting, a section of our word track, <coughs> excuse me, mm -hmm. and we'll say to them, when you come in tomorrow morning, know this cold. 
and it's doable. It's not the impossible. It's something that's doable, but it requires effort. Yeah. If they come back the next morning, they haven't done it. They just told me something. They told mm -hmm. me, Rick, listen, I like you. You're a nice guy. I love the money. Please keep sending me the check, but I will not do what must be done to be successful in this business. Right. And so I'm just going to say thank you for your time. But and this isn't for everyone. Appreciate it. But we're not going to be needing you. This isn't a good fit. That's interesting. That, that those, those three questions are they're applicable to every position in your company too. Every you're single position. Dollars, your marketing team, your sales right. team, your call center team. That's that's at the core of it, really. That, that that's pretty awesome. Yep. Um, what I'd like to do is um, I know we we're kind of short on time, and I'd love to. One last thing that I wanted to address that we talked about the other day that I think is really valuable for for home improvement companies. Um, especially sales and marketing teams is um, lead disposition. And I know we talked about that a little bit. Um, you said this, this is one of the common mistakes that the companies are making. I, I'd love to hear, you know, how to identify you have this problem and, you know, maybe quick remedy, something, you know, you can, you can put in place um, to, to, you know, stop making the mistake. Yeah, that's a, that's a big one too. By the way, it goes kind of hand in hand. There are two keys. One is lead distribution. How do you determine who gets the leads? Mm -hmm. And the other part of it is lead disposition. What happened on that lead? And this is the reason why we believe that a methodology is, sales methodology is so important because without a track that says a step selling system, if you would, that says you do step one, and then you do step two and three and four and so on, however many steps your methodology has. And they ought to all have some key word that describes the step. Like, for example, we say need. Uh, that's where you do an assessment of their project and it determines their need. And it helps the customer identify that they definitely need to do this. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we we have six. Uh, we call it the agenda, the need, the, uh, the trust, custom solution, the value. Uh, and uh, of course, action now, which means they decided to do business with you. And then what we do is we we train our salespeople and our clients. We just what we teach all our clients to do is that you teach your salespeople to know the methodology, to, ex to execute the methodology. And here's the way you monitor it. And and as you ask them to disposition every lead by simply identifying on the no sales. Look, when they made a sale. It's hard to tell. I mean, who knows what made the difference? Maybe they could tell you, but that's not as important. Why? Because they made the sale. It's mm -hmm. the ones they don't sell. And by the way, the vast majority of leads that most home improvement companies run, if they track their their, lead, their leads and their distribution, all that correctly, they sell way more than they run. So in other words, they have a high failure rate, but that's the nature of our business. If you're closing 35 to 40% of your leads, <coughs> assuming you're measuring everything correctly, then you're doing a pretty good job of conversion. Hmm. But most are not doing that. And then what they do is they have no idea why it didn't sell. So when they find they give the lead away that they paid 400 bucks to to the sales guy. And then they and some people never even ask what happened. They just never even ask. Some yeah. say, well, what happened? And they go, well, I couldn't sell them because the kids were loud and the dog was running around. And they tell you about all these circumstances and conditions that have nothing to do with whether or not they followed the methodology. So we say disposition according to your methodology. And ask your rep to say to you, the reason I did not make that sale was because I did not get a commitment to and fill in the blank. Was it need? I never got them to say we need to do this. Was it value? They never saw the value. Uh, maybe they didn't trust you. So you say, I never got a commitment to trust. And when you disposition like that, it helps you know what your salespeople are struggling with. And then it helps you know 
who's actually following the methodology. And then that helps you to know who should you give your leads to. Mm. And that's the biggest problem. Companies are giving leads a lot of times. They're given one for you, one for you, one for you, one two for you, two for you, two for you. Or, hey, he lives over here and she lives over there. And they distribute their leads like that. That's a mistake. You, you should give mm -hmm. your leads to the people who are taking the most care of them, who are putting the most into them, and are bringing you the best return on your investment. And distribution and disposition help you do that. That's awesome. Um, Rick, that, that's really all the questions I had. I think this was an extremely valuable um, podcast, you know, for, for any home improvement company, um, you know, making these mistakes. And, and you know, it's, it's a great opportunity, I think, for them to, you know, have a chat with you. I'll, I'll be sure to, to share your information on the posts and things. But Rick, Excellent. again, thanks so much for, uh, you know, taking the time out today. I know it's been a little crazy for you hopping around the country, um, but I do appreciate it. Thanks. Hey, listen, man, I like what you're doing here. The industry needs people like you helping, helping people figure it out. There's a lot of great opportunities out there to help people with their home improvement needs. And man, I'm all for teaching people the right way to do it. So thanks for what you're doing. And thanks again for having me on the podcast. That's great. Thanks, Rick. Have a good one. You bet.